Let's turn to Romans 11:28, please. If you came for communion service today, I apologize. We made a decision just yesterday to postpone it. And part of the reason is I have a, an objective that I want to reach today. And I think we'll be able to do it if you're attentive. And before we get started, I have announcements and I, I'm trying to categorize them in my mind. There's October 2nd. There's an announcement for the 2nd for the 3rd, for the 4th, and for the 8th. Now, the first, the October 2nd one is an announcement that I make because I have had the honor and privilege of co-laboring with a man in our ministry who's now and has been for some time the chairman of the Board of Deacons, and his name is Chuck Matone, and he dodged a bullet today because his birthday isn't today. It's tomorrow. (laughs) So say it loud enough. He's right out there. He's trying to hide, but you can say happy birthday, Chuck. He's happy. happy. Birthday, Chuck. He's wincing out. Yeah, that's what I was aiming at. But <laughs> And now it has been a privilege to serve with him and to it eases the burden terrifically when your your gospel ministry is to study and to teach, to have the administrative and held up and that's what he's done along with our team of deacons and along with our staff and workers and volunteers and the whole all of you who I'm very grateful for October 3rd there is Tuesday instead of Monday at the now sanctified Eaton Park at the Waterworks Mall Steve Zvonik and he told me this week that the D is silent so it's Zvonik and so He's joined the cadre of weird people whose names begin with a silent letter. And, uh, but he will be hosting what I think is a very intriguing titled message, which is Overcoming Life's Adversities and Afflictions Through the Spiritual Life in Jesus Christ. And that's really kind of what I'm going to be aiming at today. And that's a, all are welcome to attend that. On the 4th, which happens to be my mom's birthday, which I'll not be with her on, but on the 4th, we have a special date. Phil Henry Power Gospel right here. Right, Phil? You're going to be here? And I hope all of you can attend. I know there's a a sign that Coxcomb Hill is closing. Check out alternate routes and get here because that's a wonderful time of communication of the word and address of practical issues, which Phil is particularly ingenious about and if you haven't attended that I hope some of you will all of you will actually it'd be great and I'm saying that because again it's a co-laboring thing shoulder to shoulder and it's an honor to and a privilege to co-labor with you Phil with you Brian with you Pastor Brown with Tony the four horsemen are going to be taking over in in our absence and that brings October 8th to mind and that will be next week and we'll decide whether to have communion service then I will be here Pam and I are planning to go down to see my mom and there are things pressing on this side though that have forced our four horsemen into some flexibility and I thank him for it and so I appreciate your flexibility and so there will be services on Wednesdays and Sundays 
until I return. But I plan to be here next week to teach on a special subject, which will in turn segue into a study in Romans, which I'm going to, I'm not sure what I'm going to call it. I just saw a really good title by a good teacher called When in Romans, so I can't take that one, but that's coming up. So October 8th, that'll be next Sunday. That'll be a kind of a segue message into Romans, which I intend to study for and prepare for and already am. I got some construction materials ready for that, ready for some rough sanding, some fine sanding, and together we're going to tackle Romans. So stay tuned to the internet for instructions about services, and we'll be announcing more specifically those changes next week. So as you can tell, I have a message on my mind, so announcements are, are they done now? Do we have any other announcements? Okay. Dave, are you okay? Okay, then we'll start. All right, Romans chapter 11, Romans 11, chapter chapter 11, verse 28. We have moved up to this climactic passage in Romans 11. There's a whole series on it. If you want to get a series within a series of Better Call Paul, Romans 11, we started with 10, 21, 10, 20, and 21, and you can check that also on the, the website. Also on the website, there are 1,878 pages that are all together now on the notes for Revelation. And Romans will also include notes. There will be notes and for each of the messages, if I can do it, which is, is double time, but we'll do it. So Romans eleven twenty eight, Paul writes, As for the gospel, they, he's speaking of the hardened part of Israel, also known as the broken off branches that we've been studying broken off branches of an olive tree, which is the metaphorical view of Israel. God called Israel his own cultivated olive tree, an olive tree that he shaped and made beautiful and that he caused to be fruitful, and branches were broken off. They, this hardened part of Israel, became enemies of the gospel. He said, they are enemies for your sake. As for the gospel, they are enemies, he said, for your sake. He's still talking to the Gentiles here. But as for the election, they are beloved because of the patriarchs. Please notice that. Enemies of the gospel, but beloved. Loved by God. Jesus said, love your enemies. You've heard that it's been said, love your your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, You see, when Christ came, the rules changed. There was a whole rule change. There was an age change, a change of ages. And we're going to be speaking about that more and more in the future. So as for the gospel, they, that's the hardened part of Israel, are enemies for your sake. But as for the election, they are beloved because of the patriarchs, meaning that the election of the hardened and unbelieving part of Israel is still on because of God's love. So they, the hardened part of Israel, became enemies of the gospel when they rejected the stone that God laid in Zion. I will lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, but a tripping stone. 
They rejected the stone that God laid in Zion in Psalm 118.22 and Isaiah 28.16. But the stone that these builders rejected when they called for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the rock, became the cornerstone of the new creation. And therefore, this is God's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes, says the psalmist, whose eyes were enlightened in Psalm 118, 23. The gifts and the calling, then it says in verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They can't be taken back. They are irrevocable. Now, we always like to quote this in terms of our own personal eternal security. But this is about Israel. This is about the gifts and the calling of Israel that are not revoked. And thank God for that, because the salvation of all of Israel means the salvation of all humankind and the redemption of all creation. That's what we ought to be very grateful for. The gifts and the calling here are specifically related to Israel, and that means to all of Israel. All Israel shall be saved. That was this week we talked about that. Those gifts, what are they? Those gifts that he's talking about here include the advantages of the Jews. Paul said, what does the Jew have as advantages in Romans 3.1? And he began to list them in 3.2, and then he went on a little digression from 3.3 to 9.4, where he finished the list. The gifts and calling here are specifically related to Israel, and that's all of Israel, including the broken-off branches that are broken off until they're grafted in. And the hardened part that's hardened until God comes and removes the hardened heart and puts in a heart of flesh. The heart of flesh that he puts in Israel is the heart of Jesus Christ, who became flesh and made his home among us. And that's Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. But I'm, I have a, an aim today, so you'll excuse me if I move forward rather rapidly today. But the advantages of the Jews that Paul began to list are the gifts and the calling in Romans 3.1. He continued in 9, 4, and 5. These gifts include the oracles. These are the spoken utterances of God that are now in Scripture. And so those are the oracles or the spoken words of God recorded in the Scriptures. That's Romans 3.2. Then, he says, to them belongs the adoption as sons. The adoption as sons. That means the broken off branches, though they are called not my people now, will be called the sons of the living God when the Redeemer comes to Zion and takes away ungodliness from Jacob. That's Romans eleven twenty six b and 27 all of which we have already hit. I recommend getting all the way up to this verse, starting at Romans 10, 20, and 21. The titles are on the website. So that the privileges include the adoption as sons, which will not be revoked by God. That's Hosea 1, 10 also. The Shekinah glory. Now, Shekinah is not a word that's ever used in the Bible. It's used in the Targum, but it, it expresses the meaning. It means Yahweh's manifest glory in their midst, a glory that was over the mercy seat, uh, which pointed, of course, to 
the atoning work of Jesus Christ for all the sins of the world. That's where the presence of God was manifest in the midst of Israel. That glory departed, as the scripture says, and the city was called Ichabod. But that glory that departed will return. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God returning in Jesus Christ. And for us, he already has returned. So we'll see this tension developed as it has always developed through Paul of the the already and not yet. Shekinah glory, Yahweh's manifest glory in their midst, which was expected by the Jews to return to them when Messiah comes, according to the prophet Haggai 1.8, Zechariah 2.10. To them belong the covenants. The covenants means all of the covenants with their promises, as we'll see. In the giving of the Torah, the law through Moses came through them. The temple service and the promises. And as we've seen, the promises means most significantly the promise that was reiterated. Spoken to Abraham, then Isaac and Jacob. And it was reiterated that the seed of Abraham in his seed, which is Christ, all the nations will be blessed And the blessing of all the nations is the rectification of the ungodly, the rectification, the setting right of what went wrong. And that's not only true for Israel, but for all mankind. And then by the most significant degree, what also came from Israel is that according to the flesh, and Paul emphasizes that, kata sarka, came Christ who is God blessed over all Romans nine, four and five. That's a gift of God to Israel. You think he's going to take the Messiah away from them because they said away with him. You got another thing coming. And so this is the unspeakable gift of God to Israel. Second Corinthians nine, 15 And it is irrevocable. The gift of God is the endless life of the coming age through and in participation with Jesus Christ. You already have this already. You don't have it yet in all of its fullness, which will happen in resurrection. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, Romans 623 I can't wait to teach that in context it's the gift that is granted by God's unconditional grace to all of Israel even now there is an election according to unconditional grace and not of works and if it's grace it is no more works at all otherwise grace would not be unconditional which is which it is in its essence and in the same way I think Romans 11, 5, and 6 goes to Romans eleven twenty six, where it says, and in the same way, all Israel will be saved. In the way that a remnant is now elected according to God's unconditional grace, in that same way, all Israel will be saved. When? When the Redeemer comes t- to Zion. When the Redeemer comes from Zion is what it says, which means a Messiah that comes from David's royal lineage. And he comes and takes away ungodliness 
from Jacob. And so the scripture that says, though Israel be as the sands of the sea and the people be innumerable like the stars of the sky, only a remnant will be saved is only referring, and Paul reinterprets the whole thing. It's only referring to a temporary time in which a remnant alone will have this grace But then all the innumerable stars and innumerable grains of sand by all the seashores of the world will be saved in the same way. That's a prediction of all Israel being saved, not just a remnant. The remnant is a historical reality. The salvation of all of Israel is an eschatological reality that has been made a reality at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These things, if you don't grasp them now, We'll have opportunity to grasp as we deal with Romans, which will be a project coming up. And so it's the gift that is granted by God's unconditional grace to all of Israel and to all of humankind. For in Christ, all will be made alive. And the all is the most extensive all that you can have. It's all humankind that were once in Adam and who die in Adam will be made alive in Christ, the second man. And so, the gift belongs to everyone. The calling of God to Israel means that he summoned them once and for all to the hope of resurrection and glory. And that's the hope of all of Israel, and it's irrevocable. It's realizable in Christ. They, therefore, like you, Gentile Christians, Jewish Christians today, they, like you, are partakers of a heavenly calling. In Hebrews 3.1, Ephesians 1.18 gives us this sense, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, the hope to which God called you. It's all wrapped up in resurrection. God's gift to Israel is the gift of his love. And this is his gift to you. Listen up, Israel, you will love the Lord your God with all your being and love your neighbor as yourself. But here's the gift of my love so that you will do it. It's the gift of God's love. It is the gift that is granted without condition. God's gift to Israel is the gift of his love. And this is his gift to you. And as the scripture says, It is the love that God, the Holy Spirit, pours out in our hearts. The Holy Spirit to whom we were given the Holy Spirit forever in Romans 5.5. So this Holy Spirit has already been given to a remnant according to the election of grace in Romans 11.5 through 7. But he will give that same gift to the hardened part of Israel which many Christians have written off as being permanently cut off. And many Christians have written off by saying we've replaced them. And that's not true at all. That allegation is as false as untruth can be. God's gift to Israel is the Holy Spirit. And he will not revoke that gift He will, the Holy Spirit himself, the gift of God himself, will be given to the hardened part of Israel. According to Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, a profoundly important verse. I will take out the stony heart in you. The stony heart, the hardened part. 
and I will put in you a heart of flesh. Now, that's not just a human heart. That's the heart of the man, Christ Jesus himself. Paul understood this. I, as a Jew, hardened and broken off as a branch, persecuting the the assembly that is God's own church, the true Israel. I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And yet it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I've never read it anywhere, but I heard it somewhere in my study. The heart of flesh that he puts in Israel after removing their hard heart is the heart of Jesus Christ himself. So that one day all Israel will say, Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the spirit that's already been given to us. And this spirit will be given to them because right after he says, I'll take out the old Adamic ontology and put in a new spirit in them, he says, and I will put my spirit in them and cause them, cause them, to fulfill my ordinances, which all are summed up in loving God, loving your neighbor, loving your enemies. But in the resurrection, there'll be no more enemies because God would have, will have loved his enemies into Christ. It is the Holy Spirit, the spirit of the crucified Christ, The spirit of Jesus Christ is whom he's called. It is the Holy Spirit who eternally proceeded from the Father and the Son and who was sent by the Father and the Son on the second of two divine missions in history. That mission of the Holy Spirit is to bring all of creation that went terribly wrong back to God so that God will be all in all. And his bringing of all creation back is rooted in the crucifixion of the second person of the triune God and his resurrection. Some may allege that God has withdrawn his love from Israel because of their own rejection of his beloved son. But this allegation is false. Though the hardened part of Israel has become enemies of the gospel and still remain to this day, Many of them. They are still beloved. Because of the patriarchs. And when Paul says because of the patriarchs. He's making us think past the patriarchs. To the seed that came from the patriarchs. Which is Christ. He might as well say. They are still beloved. Because of Christ. They are still beloved. Because of Christ. And so, not only is it because of the patriarchs, as he says in verse 28 here, but even still more so because of the seed of the patriarchs, which is Christ, in whom all the nations are to be blessed, in whom all humankind, without exception, are to be made alive. God demonstrated his kind of love, a kind of love that's unimagined by mankind. 
that while we were all enemies under control of sin, under enemies that are too strong for us to overcome, under the power of sin, God sees the whole human race as having turned aside altogether and at once from him. And as he sees and surveys the whole of humanity, he says, then he sends his son. He loves the world so much. He sends his son. And his son loves us so much, all the world, that he gives himself over for us to be condemned for us so that, listen carefully, God can condemn us to eternal redemption. Now, follow that thought because that's a closing thought, not only for this message, but for this series, Better Call Paul, which just might end in a few minutes. And so, God demonstrated his love in that while we were all enemies and hostile to him under the control of sin, having all turned away from him in Romans 3.12. Christ died right then. Christ died. He died for the ungodly, says Romans 5.6. Why? To justify the ungodly, to rectify the ungodly, to set the ungodly right. Romans 4.5 in connection with Romans 5.6. To take away the sin of the world in John 1.29. And as we learned just this week, to remove ungodliness from Jacob. That's all of Israel. Romans eleven twenty six b to 27. The irrevocable gifts and calling of God have to do here specifically with Israel. Israel as a whole has a glorious heritage. We all know that. But did you know that Israel as a whole has a glorious destiny? An irrevocable destiny. So Israel as a whole has a glorious heritage. Israel as a whole has a glorious future. Though the glory is departed for the present and only a remnant is being saved, the glory will return. And the glory has returned for he became flesh and we beheld his glory. The glory has returned. And it has returned to Israel in a remnant according to the election of grace. For that remnant was elected by God's unconditional grace. He hardens whom he will for as long as he will. So you can badger them all day and all night. And nothing changes until God elicits faith. He gives mercy upon whom he will give mercy. And it's his will eventually to give mercy to quite a few people, as we'll see in a minute. So then, in the same way that God has elected a remnant by unconditional grace, in the same way, put Romans 11, 5 and 6 with eleven twenty six. in the same way, 
all of Israel will be saved. In the same way that a remnant is saved among all the innumerable people of Israel that are like the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky, in the same way that only a remnant is saved in history, all of them will be saved in the eschatological return of the liberator from heaven. The same liberator, the same deliverer that we wait for. For we wait for a deliverer from heaven, even our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change these bodies of humiliation and make them conformable to his own soma doxa, his own body of glory. And glory is the keynote of today's message, as we will see. Their calling, called klesis in the Greek here, K-L-E-S-I-S, klesis. Their calling means essentially their salvation, which was first promised to their patriarchs. This salvation is irrevocable because the promise to Abraham in Hebrews 6.15 through 18 was supported by a divine oath by which God swore by himself because he could find no other greater to swear by. And so the covenant and the promise from God to himself is a covenant and a promise to man mediated by one and one alone, Jesus Christ. The covenant of God is God's promise to man mediated by the man, Christ Jesus, and none other. And this is the key to the unlocking of Romans in many ways, as we are hopefully going to see. This calling, therefore, is what theologians like to call an effectual call. It creates what it says. He calls things into being which are not. So he calls Israel into being which was not. He calls you into being and you were not, but now you are. And he raises the dead. He calls Israel into being. And he calls the hardened part of Israel the Israel of God, and they become what he called them to be. This is God's doing. This is God's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes to the degree that our eyes are enlightened about him. It is an effectual call, effectual, for them to go up to Zion to the Lord their God. God has called all of Israel, come up to Zion to the Lord your God. They will all hear. They will all obey. They will obey willfully, willingly, gladly, voluntarily. Jeremiah 31, 6. So I could say this to you today without qualification. All of Israel is eternally secure. That's good news for everybody else. So Romans 1130, I'm trying to move through, as you can see, as you, Paul's still talking to the Gentile Christians who need to curb their enthusiasm. Enthusiasm can be good, but you can always do a good thing in the wrong way. A good thing can be done in the wrong way. And by the wrong means and at the wrong time. So he says, as you Gentile Christians once disobeyed and in Paul's communication with the teacher in the early chapters, however you want to read it, 
it's true that all the Gentiles disobeyed. All of the pagan nations were after idols. They all disobeyed. They were under disobedience. God classed them all under disobedience. All sinned when Adam sinned. So he says, so as you once disobeyed, no, there's no Gentile Christians in Rome that Paul says you were born, hit the ground running, right out of the womb, obeying. Psalm 58.3, which Jim said the Lord showed him about me. That we came forth from the womb speaking lies. <laughs> so Jim said, I had a word from the Lord about you. And he said, what is, and he said Psalm 58.3. But, of course it's true about me. Of course it's true about all of us. Except for Jesus Christ. The truth. So as you Gentile Christians once disobeyed, that is as pagan unbelievers, but now have received mercy. You've now received mercy. Peter, who interprets Paul, and part of most, much of Peter's epistles are interpretations of Paul, which I'm going to also show. He says, once you were not a people, writing to a majority of Gentile Christians in all of the regions of Asia Minor, once you were not a people, he's going back to Hosea 1.10, once you were, quote, not a people, but now you are the people of God. You know why? Because once you hadn't received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Mercy's a big leveler, just as sinfulness is. So, yes, all of Israel was at one time disobedient, unbelieving, unfaithful. But so were all the Gentiles. But now these Gentiles, at least some of them, have received mercy to become the people of God. Once you were not a people, but now you're the very people of God. But that doesn't mean Israel isn't the people of God. It means Israel is the people of God, and you ought to take two knees and thank God that he's made you part of Israel and the root bears you, you don't bear the root. There's a lot of attitudes going around today in Christendom in which we think that we're sustaining the root, but the root is sustaining us. And we ought to thank God for it. The root is ultimately Christ, who according to the flesh descended from Israel. Second Corinthians. Well, let's how about Titus three, five and to seven? It is not according to works of righteousness that you have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. By the washing or the bath of regeneration through the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out copiously upon you and us, whom he will pour out on all flesh eventually. Titus three, five and six. For by grace you have been rectified and now have the hope or the anticipation of eternal life in resurrection, like Israel does. So, 2 Corinthians 4 2, here's a practical one. Since we have received mercy, we do not faint. You ever go through a long period of time? where you can't see God, hear God, think about God, know if God still is anymore or if he's for you. If he is, is he for you? You go through a long period of time like that? Well, because we've received mercy, we don't quit in those times. We don't faint in those times. We receive mercy. We faint not. 
That's 2 Corinthians 4, 2. Since we've received mercy, we don't faint in the trials, the adversities, the afflictions of this life, the assaults we endure in the apocalyptic eschatological war in which we are embattled and in which God delivers us from enemies that are stronger than us. I heard a speech of an officer who trained Navy SEALs and he talked about the last hell night where they have to be in frozen mud up to their necks all night long. And they are told, if five of you quit, we're going to let you all out. And they were, you could hear, he said, you could hear the teeth chattering in the night. It was so loud. And there was a, it was a numbing, horrifying, painful cold. And they were waiting. They could see a couple guys ready to say, I quit. But somebody started to sing. And the guy said, in a horribly out-of-tune voice, but then they all started to sing. And they made the cut. It was a long night, but they made it. I think 42 ultimately made it out of 150. I'm saying all that to say something that's coming up about singing. And I hope I get to it. We have this mercy. We endure because we're engaged, whether you know it or not or like it or not, we're engaged in an apocalyptic eschatological war in which we are embattled and in which God is delivering us from enemies that are too strong for us. Jeremiah, again, 31.11, that's called sin, death, principalities and powers, the Torah hijacked by sin, the old rules that have been changed that people are still under, but they've been changed. And so they persecute the child born of mercy. But recalcitrant Israel, rebellious Israel, has also received mercy in a remnant and will receive mercy in her totality and be all glorious within. Look at Romans 11.31. So they, that's the hardened part of Israel, whom you Gentile Christians see reflected in your Jewish Christian brothers. Something's going on in Rome. Paul doesn't even call it the church in Rome. He calls it saints because there's a scattered, divisive, factious thing going on. There's a group of Gentile Christians and a few Jewish Christians that are so-called strong in faith. They know they don't need the dietary laws. They know they don't esteem one day above another. They don't follow the Sabbath. But there are weak believers that have come in that are majority Jewish believers. They're still kind of stuck on the strict of Torah they still keep days they still have certain of these things left over and the some of the Gentile Christians were despising them belittling them not having hospitality in the sense of when they came from one house church to another if one of these so-called weak in faith came they are belittled they're argued there's quarrels at the door quarrels in the church quarrels in the aftermath of assemblies and divisiveness. And that's what Paul wants to end here. He wants to bring about unit integrity in the church. Among the saints in Rome. 
because he's got an agenda and it's a missionary agenda and it's to get to where the gospel has never been proclaimed before. It's the Spanish mission. You can read about it in Romans 15 and he wants to come through Rome. And when he comes through Rome, he doesn't want five arrogant group bias factions. He wants a church because the best team effort comes from unit integrity in the gospel. So they, he said, the hardened part of Israel, whom you Gentiles see reflected in your Jewish brothers and sisters. They also have now disobeyed the majority of Israel. And that actually means disbelieved, became unfaithful. So that the same mercy given to you, they will also receive. For you see, God has imprisoned them all in disobedience. And that means all of mankind, both Jews and Gentiles. But disobedience here is apatheia, which means a disobedience that arises from disbelief. God has imprisoned them all in disobedience in order to have mercy on all. That's all humankind, including the hardened part of Israel. The part that the Gentile Christians thought was unsavable. The most unsavable people in the world today are the ones that God delights to save. Much to the shock of the pious. Paul's a great example of that. I myself am also an Israelite, he said. So there's something quite leveling about all being the recipients of mercy. So how can you, Paul is saying to all of us, a recipient of God's mercy, despise or hate your brother, also a recipient of mercy. In Romans fourteen ten and 11, he says, you then, why do you criticize your brother? Or why do you look down on your sister or your brother? We will all be present at the judgment seat of God. And I love this in verse 11 of Romans 14, just as it stands written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. It isn't every human being that's ever lived and raised from the dead takes a knee. Every human being takes both knees. There's unity. And guess what they do? They all sing together with one mouth, glorifying God. Not because they persisted all night in the mud but because Jesus Christ persisted all the way through the cross. And so, the accent is on every, every name. The time and the place, the most appropriate time to bow both knees And the most appropriate place is before the judgment seat of God when we see that we have all been condemned to eternal redemption. Follow that thought now. Keep that thought in your soul. Not just today either. And so, every one of us is a recipient of Yahweh's mercy. 
Every one of us will take a knee, no, two knees, before God. Someone said, I couldn't bow my knee now if I wanted to. You'll have two then, and they'll both be good. Every one of us will give praise to God. On this verse, I like what Martin Luther said on this verse, but I'd have to qualify the last phrase of it, not being a total Lutheran myself. Karl Barth cited Martin Luther on this verse, Romans 11.32, and he said this back in the 1500s. He said, take to heart this great text. By it, the whole righteousness of the world and of men is damned. And by it, the righteousness of God alone is exalted. Here's the part I'd amend. Then the last thing he says is, the righteousness of God, which is by faith. I would amend that slightly, the last phrase, and say, the deliverance of God, which is by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So, Marty and I, Martin Luther and I, can say together, by this verse, or this text, The whole righteousness of the world and of men is damned, and by it the righteousness of God alone is exalted, the deliverance of God, which is by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So, I'd amend that last phrase just a little. What can be expressed by us in response to this universal mercy is what? What what can you say now? How do we respond to this Universal, unconditional mercy. What is there left to do except thank God? Gratitude. Praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's left after a deliverance like this? Other than doxology. The granting of glory to God. The attributing of glory to the Father and the Son and the Spirit. What is there left after deliverance? Other than doxology. What can be said in response to this final declaration of so great and so universal a salvation? Nothing but worship. Nothing but worship is expressed in the next verse in this awesome doxology so sublimely. Romans 11.33, Paul starts, oh, exclamation point. Oh, the depth of the wealth of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unfathomable are his decrees, or you can say judgments here, not be afraid of it, and unscrutable his ways. God's decrees he's speaking about here, or judgments as they're called, include his condemnation, listen carefully, includes his condemnation of all the human race, To eternal salvation. How else could you say. Oh oh, the depths. Of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Who could have thought of this. Fleming Rutledge. Such a wonderful writer. Cites Shakespeare of all people. And he quotes. She quotes the comedic utterance of. Dogberry the Constable, one of Shakespeare's comedy plays, Much Ado About Nothing. A whole series was based on 
Much Ado About Nothing. It was called Seinfeld. Much Ado About Nothing. It's, it was a brilliant and ingenious thing by Larry David, who wrote the story. And then Curb Your Enthusiasm, also based on Much Ado About Nothing. Much happens and grows out of something that really isn't much of anything at all, which is brilliant. But Dogberry, the constable, the sheriff, we would say today, he says in a comedic verbal blunder, he makes a terrible blunder, and it's supposed to be funny. The audiences went wild at this when they saw these plays of Shakespeare. Much ado about nothing. He says, oh, villain, speaking to a criminal, thou art condemned into everlasting redemption. And everybody laughs, ha, 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 but... Shakespeare, smart hitter, was making a point, a theological point, a powerful point. Rutledge, Fleming Rutledge, who is an Episcopal priest and brilliant theologian, she writes this. The Constable Dogberry's slip of the tongue in Shakespeare's play is meant to bring a laugh, but it makes the point precisely. The condemnation of Jesus Christ means redemption for the world. And by extension, God's condemnation of the sin of his people is part of his redemptive purpose. Isaiah says this clearly, she says, destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. That's Isaiah 10:22. Guess who cites it? Guess who lets that echo into his own writing? Paul in Romans 9:27 and 28 where he talks about what people quote. You say, "Oh yeah, all the seed of Israel, they're innumerable people, but of them only a small remnant will be saved." But they fail to recognize that in the same way that that small remnant is saved now, the whole innumerable company will be saved when the deliverer comes to Zion. When the deliverer comes from Zion to Jacob to take away his ungodliness, just like he took away the sin of the world, he took it away by enduring, by becoming sin, of course. In fact, Paul lets Isaiah 10, 22 to 23 echo into Romans 9, 27 to 28 where he speaks of not only a remnant of Israel being saved, but the salvation of the innumerable people of Israel through a transformative judgment, which totally destroys not Israel, but Israel's sinfulness, not mankind, but Adamic ontology. It's destructive and it ought to be, but it overflows with deliverance or righteousness And God decrees this throughout the earth, throughout the land of Israel, but throughout the earth of all mankind. That's what Isaiah 10, 23 means. So how can it be then that we who have sinned in Adam are condemned to everlasting redemption? Because of God's ways, which are not our ways, not by a long shot. Because of the way, the truth, and the life. Because of Jesus. Because of the one righteous deed of the one man, Jesus Christ. A deed began at his birth, his incarnation. A deed, a single deed that culminated in his obedience to death, even death, by the shameful, brutal, savage, unspeakable, ugly, ungodly means of crucifixion. 
That's how. How unsearchable are his ways. Because of the one righteous deed of the one man Jesus. Which culminated in his ungodly and indescribable shameful death by crucifixion. Which as we know is to be distinguished. But now it's inseparable and undividable from his resurrection from the dead. The depth of the wealth of God's wisdom. Is Christ. It is in the crucified Christ. It's the logic and the law of the cross that not even the highest intellect of the principal angels could ever have conceived. And that's why God's teaching them through the church in Ephesians 3.10 about his manifold wisdom. His wisdom is always a saving thing. The depth of the wealth of God's wisdom is Christ. Jesus Christ is the wisdom and the power of God. He's the wisdom that the Gentile seeks for. And he's the power that the Jew required. He's the power of salvation to all who believe. Listen carefully. He is the power of salvation to all who believe. And all will believe. Whether by hearing and not seeing as you have or by seeing him when Yahweh appears, whose flesh was pierced through divinely guided human hands. His flesh was pierced through divinely guided and humanly driven spikes. By God's decree, Christ has become wisdom for us. This is God's doing. 1 Corinthians 1.30. And by God's chosen way, Christ's cross, he has rectified or set right the ungodly and saved the human race from enemies too strong for us. Jeremiah 31.11 speaks to that. This is God's wisdom and this is God's knowledge. There's something more important than your knowledge of God. It's God's knowledge of you. In Christ. This is the sum of God's decrees we're talking about here. This is the essence of his ways. This is God's doing. It's the action of God. Who made the stone that was rejected by the builders. The people that count the VIPs. God made that stone. The cornerstone of a new creation. A universal new creation which Christ himself comprises. Cornerstone isn't just a stone among the stones. It's the stone that comprises the whole, without which the whole collapses. So he comprises the whole creation. It is the marvelous, it is wondrous, it is stupendous in our eyes. Eyes that are being enlightened. That's why we're here. There's no other reason. Eyes that are being enlightened. Eyes that I pray will be enlightened much more. We're not quite done. Romans 11, 34. Unfathomable, I say. That's how I translate it because Paul's still on the thought. How unfathomable. He goes, unfathomable, I say. For who has ever known the mind of the Lord? 
Who has been his advisor? This is another way of saying nobody in the human race or among the innumerable angelic company would have ever thought of what God thought of. No one would have imagined or dreamed his intention. The mystery of his will. Note that word mystery of his will. To demonstrate his wisdom to principalities and powers. High-ranking angels. Why does he demonstrate his wisdom to them? Because they never would have thought of it either. They were not his advisors, and they could never have conceived of such a wondrous plan of unconditional grace and universal salvation. They couldn't have done it. And they couldn't have thought of a plan to sum up everything universally in his son, whom he predetermined to be handed over by his own people to godless men to be crucified in the most savage and brutal, shameful fashion. And to be raised again in the most indescribable glory. And to save the ungodly perpetrators of his death. Those who pierced him. I say to you that you love your enemies. And he did. And he does. And the measure of our faith should be determined by the degree that we hope for the salvation of our enemies. Who would have thought of that? I'm beginning to close. Those who pierced him will see him, and the seeing of him is saving. All flesh shall see him and experience the salvation of the Lord altogether. We altogether turned aside, altogether sinned, altogether responsibly sinned. And we altogether will experience, all flesh together will experience the salvation of the Lord. Isaiah 40 and verse 5 cited in Luke 3, 6. So, What's the question? Who is around to advise God? The answer, of course, is nobody. Which is why Jesus Christ became nobody. One of the translations says he made himself of no reputation. In a time when everybody wants to make a reputation for themselves, and then even more arrogantly wants to have a legacy. Jesus made himself of no reputation, made himself nobody, made himself basically the man with no name. And the word isn't servant, it's slave. Took on the form. You want a vocation? What vocation do you choose if you're God and you're going to the human race? What vocation do you matriculate at college to become? A slave. To do the will of my father in the minutest detail, even to the death of the most shameful possible way of dying. Crucifixion. That's why nobody could have ever conceived of such a plan to show mercy to all. Nobody, that is, but God who is love in his essence, love in his being, love in his action, love in his decrees.
love in his ways. And so the eternal son of God's love became nobody. He took the vocation of a menial role of a slave and was led to the slaughter like a spotless, yearling, helpless lamb. But he was God's lamb. And he took away the sin of the world. Even as he will come from Zion, the royal lineage of David, as he already has come. And remove ungodliness from Jacob which he has done at the cross, but which he will do in dramatic fashion in the resurrection of all Israel and all humankind. So in verse 35, who has given to him first? And and he has to respond. Well, I repented, so he has to respond with forgiveness. That's not Bible. That's not Bible. That's not the word of God. It says right here, who has given to him first? And has to be repaid. The reward isn't reckoned by debt, Paul said, but by grace. And so this is like saying as if we repent and he has to give us forgiveness. I repeat a quote again of Ms. Rutledge, Fleming Rutledge from the crucifixion. Listen carefully. I repeat it from Thursday. Paul rejects the idea of repentance as a precedent human work. As a work that precedes an action of God, of salvation, is how I would comment on that. In more detail, she writes correctly about Paul's apocalyptic view. The cross resurrection event marks the decisive turn in the cosmos. Repentance does not make this possible. God engenders the whole thing, including our repentance. Even Luke got that right, and he wasn't as smart as Paul. Acts eleven eighteen, where he says, the Jewish leaders rejoiced, and they said, wow, looks like God granted, granted, granted repentance to the Gentiles. Interesting. Then she says this, there is a new creation. The fix we were in has been dramatically and decisively reversed. Even here in the doxology are quotations and loud echoes. Maybe you can hear them from the oracles of God that were committed to the Jews. Isaiah 40 and verse 13 echoes here. So does Job 41, 11. So does Job 35, 7. But then Paul concludes this, and I conclude better call Paul the series, this 109th installment, the end of the series with this. For from him, And by him, or we could say through him, and to him is everything. Tapanta, the all things without exception. From him means all creation. Through him is redemption. And to him comes all things in a universal return. Ultimately, the return of the prodigal son speaks of a universal return. Because even the elder brother has always been loved. 
On 1136, another one of my favorite exegetes, whom I battle it out with sometimes, A.T. Robertson, makes the following comment. Of him, ex autu, through him, de autu, unto him, ice autu, ice auton. By these three prepositions, Paul ascribes the universe, tapanta, with all the phenomena concerning creation, redemption, providence, to God as the source, the agent, and the goal. Forever. Ace to aeonios, which means for the ages. Henry Alford terms this doxology in verse 33 to 36, the sublimest apostrophe existing even in the pages of inspiration itself. This doxology, though, will one day be sung by all of Israel, even if, like me, it's horribly off-key. And by the nations itself in unison, as Romans 15.6 says and 15.9b says, with one voice glorifying God with this doxology. One voice. People who are presently hardened and reject the gospel. Muslims presently. Buddhists presently. Sikhs presently. Atheists presently. Agnostics presently. Christians who aren't really Christians, Christians who profess Christianity but hate, will all be glorifying God with one mouth, just as with one mouth God spoke with the one mouth of the prophets about a little thing called apocatastasis panto, which Paul improved by saying anakephaliosis in Christu, the restoration, the salvation of all things in Christ. Dogberry was right. You villains. You are condemned to eternal redemption. That's a decree of God. Who would have thought of that? Who, you can't, you see, the very word is like, that's crazy. That's weird. No, no one says that. God did. What are you going to do about this human race? Look how sinful they are. Watch how sinful they act. Look what they view in their homes. They are addicted to erotic sensation. They are addicted to their own prestige. They are desirous of their own recognition, their own legacy. They are worshipful of themselves. Look at them all. What are you going to do to these sinful villains? I'm going to condemn them to eternal redemption by condemning their sin in the flesh of my son on Calvary. So what the law could not do in that it was weak through human flesh, God did in condemning sin in the flesh of his own son. So there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus because all the condemnation went on Christ Jesus. So it's with these thoughts that Paul proclaims a universal salvation in Christ and in the triune God. It is evident that he presents a vision of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance and that his epistles in toto are an apocalypse of an all-saving Savior, just as John's apocalypse and John's gospel are. It is also true that this vision is with a view to unity to the unit integrity of the saints in love, a unity that only could be maintained by humility 
And this is a humility of Christ manifested in every member of his body. And with this, we end the series called Better Call Paul. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be together for 109 plus hours and to try to wrap our arms around the mind of Paul, which was so deeply inspired by the mind of Christ and by your own mind. And we thank you that we'll never wrap our arms around it. But oh, how fun it is to pursue. How fun it is to seek, to search, to investigate, to inquire in your temple. I pray, Father, that those eyes that you've enlightened today and in the measure that you've enlightened the eyes of our little cadre of believers here today, that's the measure in which they stand in awe and wonder at your ways, at your works, at your righteousness, at your son. And so all I have to pray is enlighten our eyes all the more, open them all the more, that we may see and that we may understand this so great salvation and let it inspire in us the only reasonable response to hit our knees and thank God the Father through whom all of the families in heaven and earth are named as his own. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. And thank